Progress. Conserving the means of error correction. There are three important related ways in which we error correct our way to a better world. Not inevitably better, but the possibility of improvement. There are never any guarantees of success, merely guarantees of failure. The ways that allow for the possibility of improvement are, in order of importance, free speech, free trade, and free voting. Or in other words, freedom of expression, capitalism, and democracy. These three facets of our civilization emerge from the deepest known moral and epistemological maxim. Do not destroy the means of error correction. And that maxim is the defining characteristic of what David Deutsch has called our tradition of criticism. A rare kind of tradition in human history because it is a tradition that helps ensure progress rather than all other traditions which are about stasis or keeping things the same. I say that protecting speech and then trade and then voting is the order of importance because free speech is what is required for trade and voting to operate effectively in a society. Trade and democracy can only provide advantages once people have been free to talk about what is worth trading and with who and what free trade really is, not to mention who has good ideas and what those ideas are in a democracy. It is likewise free speech which allows for things like science, intellectual debate, a proper understanding of history, a free media and an increase in knowledge everywhere. Free speech allows for the creation of stuff that can then be traded. Hence, it is logically prior to trade, which without speech trades only in counterfeits, rather like China does under its version of so-called capitalism, rather than trading in genuine innovations as places like the US and the UK do. Freedom of expression rather than free speech narrowly is really what we are after, although I will use the terms interchangeably here, as many do, but freedom of expression is the broader term, as it implies one can wear what they want and produce what content like art they like, even if they are not actually speaking in a technical sense. But free speech properly understood is freedom of expression, and free speech or freedom of expression rests on the underlying idea, some might even call it a principle, of error correction. That is why it exists, and that is the speech we want to protect. That which we cannot know ahead of time will be part of correcting errors. In the Western world, there are often claims that democracy is under attack, that may well be so, but the attacks are not serious threats in the main because the institutions in the West are robust and have evolved over time responses to those who would try to wield tyrannical power. Yes, many claim that, for example, the events during COVID in the West were signs of a slide towards tyranny. But look where we are now. Many of those leaders were removed, the policies revoked, and the wider culture more sceptical in many places of things like universal lockdown. A sense of common sense, keep calm and carry on, has been restored. Now many are worried, it must be admitted, that the way long studied and deliberated over policies for what to do in a pandemic were trashed at a moment's notice by elected officials who aped some of the worst policies that China implemented. And people now see that as some kind of dress rehearsal of what might be done under the umbrella of climate change concerns. Could we have our freedom of movement and speech restricted for what we say about climate change once the people in power genuinely think the catastrophe is upon us? 
Or what if they think the same about AI? Might they decide to implement lockdowns under the threat of AI? If they begin to take somewhat seriously and literally the hyperbolic cry of protesters everywhere that the world is on fire, maybe then they will lock us down. But I am not so concerned. Say the worst did happen. We still have those robust institutions of democracy. If elected politicians enact draconian policies, they can and will be removed eventually. And if they tried to undermine the democratic system itself, the apparatus of the state in the form of courts, the media, and these days social media, and an increasingly active movement for liberty in the form of a coalition of conservatives, libertarians, capitalists, and more, are ready to counter them. And ultimately, all of the most severe calls that democracy has been destroyed have been refuted time and again from Donald Trump's removal from office through to Hillary Clinton's failure to gain it and the return to relative normalcy after COVID. Inquiries into what was done during COVID are happening now and politicians are being hauled before committees with some having their careers entirely ruined by the policies they enacted back then. This is democracy in action. It wasn't destroyed, and it turns out it was never under threat. Democracy is a system for removing rules and the rulers when we disagree with them. It is not a system for electing the best or making the best rules. Problems are inevitable. Error is the usual state of things, and in politics, we must expect the wrong decision to be made as often as the right one. The measure of a democracy is the extent to which errors can be corrected. But it is not the only system of error correction required for the most dynamic societies. A dynamic society is one that makes sustained rapid progress. One that is stable under great change. And that rapid progress is not merely in the economic realm. It is across the board. It is moral progress. It is a decrease in violence, both among citizens and between the state and its citizens. It is technological progress. It is scientific progress. It is knowledge in every domain. Now, democracy helps with all of that, but it is not the most decisive form of error correction in this regard. In terms of making rapid, sustained progress, democracy really is the icing on the cake. Now, we don't want icing without a cake. We need the cake. I must hasten to add that. And now that we have democracy in the West, we want to preserve it and we want to protect it even with force if that is ever required. For example, from an undemocratic outside tyrant leading an army to invade a democratic nation. But in places which do not yet have democracy, those tyrant-governed single-party nations of the world... Two other forms of error correction are more important to spread in a society first. Again, the most important of these means of error correction is freedom of expression or free speech, the free exchange of ideas. That form of error correction is the one that makes all other forms of error correction possible. We must be able to articulate what the errors are, to identify them, to have any hope of correcting them. And to identify errors, we need to be able to speak about them and ask of our neighbours, is this a problem? It looks like an error, a mistake or a lie to me. Is it? Let's talk. Or let's write a post. Or let's gather together and meet about this and protest and so on. Or let's write a scientific paper. Or broadcast a news story. 
if speech is curtailed, then literally no one can gather together and find allies and agree. This is the error and here's how we can correct it and move forward. That's not possible. If we cannot discuss what is wrong with some scientific theory, how can we expect to move beyond it and make progress? If there is a problem in society, how can we hope to remedy it if we cannot speak, write about or meet about it? The next most important means of individual and social error correction is freedom of trade. This is what creates wealth. The ability to engage in work one freely chooses to and to agree on a price for that work. It is the ability to see someone offering a good or a service and be able to purchase the good or service without others intervening to stop you or hamper you in that trade. But again, I'm emphasizing all of this is of secondary importance to free speech because it is speech that can trump trade. For example, only through speech can we decide that, for example, individuals should not be able to purchase nuclear weapons, but they should be able to purchase guns. There's an argument for that, and so there are arguments why some restrictions on trade do not amount to restrictions on free trade. We have to properly understand free trade. It's not just anything goes. Liberty in general is not just anything goes. It is free speech that allows us to discuss restrictions on just saying stuff. The mob boss, the mafia don, who tells an underling, go and kill my enemy, Michael Corleone, is not just saying stuff. It's not just speech. There is implied violence. The mob boss is using his underling as he would use a gun. The underling is a tool in that case because the underling knows it is Michael Corleone or me. No matter what, there will be death because the Don will kill someone. So he is culpable for the murder as much as the guy who wields the gun. It's basically a logical deduction at that point. There are many examples of this kind of thing, and most are edge cases which do not change the fundamental maxim. Do not destroy the means of error correction. Preventing people from calling for genocide when attempts at genocide have just occurred is not, for example, destroying the means of error correction. Rather, calling for genocide is calling for the destruction of the means of error correction. Killing people is killing the very entity that corrects errors. This is not a difficult argument to follow. Free speech stops at the place where your speech seeks to destroy the means of error correction. But this is a very narrow, circumscribed category. There are edge cases, and edge cases do not refute the general rule. Exceptions prove the rule, precisely because they prove the rule exists. Only rules have exceptions. But as I say, properly considered, they are not even exceptions because they are not examples in this case of free speech. They are speech and something else, like the mob boss telling an underling to kill one of his enemies. And the something else, the something more beyond the speech makes all the difference. They imply the imminent use of violence. And that is not just speech. It is an imminent use of violence. The terrorist who says to the police with their guns trained on him, that's it, I'm going to set this bomb off now and kill all these people around me, has just forfeited their life with a violent and imminent threat. There is a continuum of such violent threats from that which is immediate through to that which is more nebulous and of the form, we will get to this genocide eventually, just you wait, and we're supportive of it happening right now in the case of, say, those people chanting from the river to the sea, or something similar where we know what they're getting at, especially where the potential victims are actually neighbours of those calling for the genocide. So that is free speech, free trade, 
and democracy. And where a nation has none of those things, for the possibility of them having all of them and transitioning from a more static society into a more dynamic one, they must have free speech first in order that the others are protected. Let us look quickly at some case studies. Palestine had elections until Hamas took over in 2006. Hamas had won the previous election and used their new authority to promptly murder all opposition and cancel all future elections. There has not been a vote in Palestine since 2006. It goes without saying that being a society living under the umbrella of strict Islamism, there was no free speech, no freedom of expression, no safety for anyone who identified as anything other than a strict adherent to Islam. No gender or sexuality diversity, no political diversity, none of it. Never mind free trade. People were not permitted free speech or barely even free thought. The place was governed by anti-rational memes where even... Thinking you or the government might be wrong was a painful thought to have because it might lead to speech which would lead to your death and the deaths of your family. Much the same kind of thing operates in North Korea. The people are so well indoctrinated there that a kind of Stockholm syndrome takes hold where leaders are seen as gods and literally believed when they are telling egregious lies about the West or anything at all. The people have become unable to think their worldview might be wrong because they have been unable to speak about it for so long. There are people in towns, no matter how small the community, called the Inminbam, and others who will report to party officials and police anything that is said in hushed tones anywhere, anytime. In other words, there are literally spies everywhere, and anyone who does not praise the government enough, never mind actually criticise it, will be disappeared to a concentration camp or worse. Soon, the entire populace just know not to say anything wayward, and that changes their very minds to become uncritical. And it becomes more and more deeply entrenched as they age until they become the enforcers of the doctrine against their very own children and family. This is how insidious curtailing free speech to that extent, or indeed any extent, can become. And this is why free speech is the master right from which all others flow. So we have Palestine, we have North Korea. Let us also add attempts by the West to bring democracy to the Middle East in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and failed to do so. Sure, those places had elections for a time and then they fell back into tyranny and violence again. Why? Because democracy is just the icing on the cake. The cake itself is free speech and trade. People need to first be free to speak their mind without fear of violence. And they need to be able to increase their wealth through the free exchange of goods and services without fear of the state coming and stealing that wealth or restricting and regulating that trade out of existence. Afghanistan failed to become a democracy because it did not first have free speech. If the populace does not feel free to say that the powerful men and the tribal chieftains in charge have ideas they disagree with, then as soon as something like the US military leaves and takes its protection of those people away, the chieftains immediately take over and no one can say a thing because they'll be literally strung up if they do. Not even the military and police in those countries, much less the existing elected politicians, can resist. Because the memes running on the minds of a majority of the men and even the women in society vastly outnumber those in the existing state apparatus. Police and military can do a lot in a society to maintain the peace. 
in an enlightened country, but not if an armed populace who disagree with them in a static society vastly outnumber and outgun them. But why would people in such a society disagree with a peaceful, diverse, secular democracy? Because they're theocrats. Why would a majority in a society be theocrats? Because they've never encountered arguments that they should not be. They simply know that their way is best and righteous. Their religion does not allow them to entertain ideas that it might be wrong, and they might be wrong. They cannot discuss it. They need to be able to speak about it first and have their minds changed. Minds can be changed, and that happens when speech is free. But how can speech be free before there is a democratic institution to protect it? Well, as it turns out, there are many such ways. These days, with technology, anyone with a mobile phone can begin the gradual transition from a hateful, genocidal bigotry into a free-thinking defender of Enlightenment values. Of course, they can also go in the other direction, but that is far more rare these days because Enlightenment values always have the advantage. That advantage is drawn either side of the error correction line that allows for progress, and progress leads to improvement and a better life. It becomes undeniable that one path leads to things getting better for oneself, one's family and one's wider society, and one leads reliably to misery. It may be undeniable, but the transition can be slow on the timescale of an individual life. But in terms of the timescale of the existence of a society, it can be rapid. See, for example, the case of South Korea. It was ruled by military dictators, tyrants, for a time decades after the Korean War, when the USA, its allies and capitalist forces in South Korea, partially had a victory against the communist North and the combined might of Soviet and Chinese forces. I say partially because, well, North Korea still exists. Now, for a time, South Korea was not a democracy in any real sense. But they were capitalist and there was a reasonable version of free speech there. Eventually, the rapid rise of wealth and technology in the society brought with it a rapid rise in mass media and the arts, which brought with them free expression. And so finally, elections were held. And in that order... And now, South Korea is one of the freest, most wealthy places in all of Asia and indeed all of the world. It is a shiny example of the Enlightenment and a truly dynamic society when set beside the darkness and dankness of one of the most static societies on the face of the planet, North Korea. The DMZ, the Demilitarized Zone, which divides the North from South Korea, is the line of demarcation that falsifies communism, censorship and a one-party system in the light of the democracy, free speech and trade that exists in the South. There is no more stark example anywhere. Just look at these maps of nighttime in both countries. Capitalism is literally enlightened in the South. Socialism is literally darkness in the North. Now, neither the South nor the North are perfect examples of either capitalism or socialism, respectively. That is not the argument. The argument is that if a society tends in the direction of capitalism, free trade and free speech, and the extent to which it does implement all of those, the society succeeds and is dynamic. And if a society tends in the direction of socialism and regulation and censorship, the society fails and becomes static. And so we come to the next example of China. 
here we have had implemented some limited form of capitalism, some loosening of the regulations on trade within the nation controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. For what it's worth, even North Korea has, under Kim Jong-un, some loosening of trade restrictions as compared to that under his father, Kim Jong-il, and his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, the so-called founder or father of North Korea, and ostensibly, even to this day, its eternal president. In China, roughly a similar thing is thought about Mao Zedong, who is basically deified by the regime in power today, and by large numbers of the Chinese population. It must not be underestimated how vociferous and passionate many in China are about their system, as terrible as it is. Many regard the time of Mao as being some sort of golden era for China. How can that be? Two reasons. Number one, they and their family were from the favoured classes under Mao and so had relatively comfortable lives as compared to the many more whose families either starved to death, some 50 or 60 million of them, or just eked out an existence in spite of the horrors perpetrated under Mao. And Two, they recall their youth. And of course, everyone looks back with rose-coloured glasses to their childhood and when they were younger, even if objectively speaking, it was of course worse for basically everyone everywhere decades ago. Mao, after all, only died in 1976. And so many, many people still remember that time fondly. And why? They survived and their families thrived because they were favoured. Those who hated Mao are no longer in a position to say so because they're long dead or imprisoned or still tilling the fields and do not have a voice on, for example, social media to say so. So recent presidents of China, most especially Deng Xiaoping, managed with great effort to open up China somewhat in terms of trade both within China and the rest of the world. This, it must be admitted, was a good thing, but it has not been sustained and it's not sustainable. Their version of free trade is, again, for just a favoured few occupying large cities and close to the officials in the Communist Party. And under the current president, Xi Jinping, much of the freedoms that led to the relative flourishing under Deng Xiaoping and his immediate successors have been wound back. Today's President Xi engaged in a so-called anti-corruption campaign, which is a euphemism for removing from the Communist Party anyone who agreed with his predecessor's reforms. So now he is surrounded only by yes-men. He has purged his party of dissidents or capitalist sympathisers, and so his foreign policy is likewise bellicose. He has increased censorship and mass surveillance using technology, face recognition cameras and a social credit system are in place in China keeping track of what people say, post and do and purchase. You will lose social credit and eventually access to trade if you disagree with the government on basically anything. Or you buy things not approved by the government, even where those things are legal, by the way. So, for example, alcohol. Your social credit will go down if you buy wine, or at least too much wine. And if you are a business owner and charging more for that wine than the government deems correct, your social credit goes down. So this tyrannical system is trickling down to basically white hand what there was of free speech and free trade. And for this reason, the growth of China has slowed drastically. And never mind the way in which this plays out on the international stage with China punishing those internationally who would trade with it. 
If a government of another country objects to China's stance on Taiwan or their behaviour in the South China Sea by, for example, attacking the Philippine Coast Guard vessels, as has now been done, China will outlaw products from those nations. China is sliding backwards now and losing what free speech and free trade features it had, and so more people are now becoming impoverished rather than enriched, or at the very least, the rate at which people are becoming wealthy has seen a massive decline in China. They may, once upon a time, have lifted more people more quickly out of poverty due to implementing some limited form of capitalism in and out of the country, but now that is not true. The rate of improvement of people in China has declined. As we can see right here in this graph, this means fewer poor people are becoming wealthy since the early 2000s. People are still getting wealthy, but not at the rate they were, for example, under Deng Xiaoping. In chapter 15, The Evolution of Culture, from his masterpiece, The Beginning of Infinity, David Deutsch takes the work of Karl Popper on what Popper called open and closed societies a step further into what Deutsch calls dynamic and static societies by explaining the underlying epistemological structure of both in terms of the ideas that survive, memes in other words. Dynamic societies are dominated by rational memes, ideas which propagate through the use of critical thought. In other words, conjecture and refutation. The creation of ideas and the attempt to criticise them by any and all means openly and freely. These are the hallmark of dynamic societies, the free, open exchange of criticisms of ideas about anything and anywhere. But on the other hand, static societies are dominated by anti-rational memes. These are not merely irrational ideas, which are simply not rational, but rather prevent rational ideas from winning out, at least temporarily. And this is because anti-rational memes go beyond the merely irrational into disabling the critical faculties of the holder. We are all susceptible, and we are, all of us, even in dynamic societies, carrying around lots of anti-rational memes directing our behaviour. But our society as a whole is not dominated by them. What characterises a static society is that a majority of people, a majority of the time, refuse to engage in criticism of, for example, the powers that be and the ideas that dominate society. Therefore, the society does not improve rapidly. It tends in the direction of stasis. Things don't change. Rulers don't change and parties don't change. Ideas don't change. The lot of women, children and people of diverse sexuality and gender and other ethnicities or religions in those societies do not change or do not change in a way anyone ever notices. Anti-rational memes propagate in a society by disabling the holder's critical faculties. Anti-rational memes like, if you criticise this holy book, you will go to hell for eternity. Or, if you criticise the government, you will be arrested. Or, if you criticise our religion, you will be put to death. Or, if you engage in sexual activity we do not approve of, you will be thrown from a rooftop. Or, if you teach a young girl to read, you will have acid thrown in your face. Or, if you are a woman and leave the house without a male relative, you will be stoned to death. Or, if your social credit score gets too low, you will be unable to purchase anything from the shops. All of these things, and so it goes disable the critical faculties, make it impossible for people to say anything critical for fear that any of those things will happen, and therefore it makes them unwilling to even think those things for fear they might say those things. In the enlightened Western dynamic societies, we are not immune 
to having anti-rational memes sometimes dominate our thinking. For example, people are taught as children that if they do not learn a lesson fast enough in school, they will be punished. And so many of us grow up to fear learning new things. A deeply entrenched rational meme tells us learning is uncomfortable because it is accompanied by punishment. Even if our minds as adults know this consciously to be untrue, our same minds unconsciously feel it to be so. And so most people hate mathematics in the West, for example, because teachers punish them for errors as children, even for learning languages. And so many of us struggle to learn a second language, much less a third or anything more. Or we struggle with sports or dancing or singing or public speaking because we were laughed at and made fun of when we were younger and trying these things out. These introduce anti-rational memes into our minds and make life more difficult for us and progress more slow. And we tend to enact those same memes. Many of us never get out of the habit of also teasing people for making mistakes, making people feel bad for trying something new and sometimes failing, as is required if you are learning something new. But of course, in comparison, sure, we are, all of us in the West, very well off compared to people in China, Russia, the Middle East, much of the Islamic world and so on, for all those places where stasis rules over dynamism. There, not only is learning hard and shame the order of the day when it comes to transgressing cultural norms or simply trying to come up with a new idea, but severe corporal punishment and imprisonment and even death are the consequences for speaking out, doing the wrong kind of research, publishing the wrong kind of content, making the case for the wrong kind of improvement, saying the wrong thing. We want to avoid all of that, and hence we do not want hate speech laws or censorship restrictions or regulations on trade or politicians who would seek to supplant nation states and the democratic vote, instead implementing some kind of supranational unelected bureaucrats to be in charge of our elected officials, or having the elected officials abrogate their own responsibilities to unelected officials within their own departments. We want, always to be in our own societies, to tend in the direction of more liberty in terms of speech, trade and voting. And again, in that order of priority. First, protect speech. Then, protect trade. Third, protect democracy. And internationally, we should first work for promoting free expression everywhere and the information revolution to places where technology is restricted and then help people to trade one with another and with ourselves freely. And finally, once those are well and truly on the ascendancy, perhaps even entrenched as part of those cultures, then allow the means for those people to elect their own leaders. Groups of freedom-loving South Koreans still gather periodically just south of the DMZ with balloons with satellite mobile phones attached which can drift over the walls, fences and the border separating their free nation in the south with their relatives imprisoned in the north. So some people in the north will receive a phone with access to the world's information and not restricted as the phones in the north are. This is in the hope that more people in the north have access to more knowledge about the world which includes reasons why free speech and trade are only and everywhere good because the world outside is better than they in the North can possibly know. 
And then the people inside can hopefully agitate for change because it needs to be bottom up and not top down. Yes, in history, the example of Germany serves as an example of what top-down enforcement from outside can achieve. But in Germany, this happened so swiftly and so successfully after the fall of Nazism precisely because Germany was once a free, dynamic and open society before the rise of Hitler. They still remembered a culture not that long ago, in just the 1930s compared to the end of the war in 1945, and especially before the 1930s, when there was flourishing peace and freedom. So it wasn't difficult for them to go back. And in Japan, General Douglas MacArthur occupied the nation, and the United States of America never left. And a constitution not entirely dissimilar to the USA's own, which guaranteed free speech, for example, was implemented. Since its inception in 1946 and when it came into effect in 1947, not a single comma has been changed and the Japanese constitution is a model worldwide for the protection of human rights, academic freedom and free speech. Just read it sometime, it's easily found on the web here. The Japanese constitution basically is the American constitution with a few changes, like the fact it is a constitutional monarchy with the emperor's head of state who has no real powers beyond ceremonial duties, just like the British monarch. There are issues in Japan with police powers, for example, yes. But overall, the prosperity of Japan ever since the war can be traced to the existence of a constitution guaranteeing free speech, trade and democracy. Japan is now one of the most desirable places on the planet to live, where people are at peace one with another and with other nations, unlike its neighbour China, where, say what you like about the wealth of some people there, it is not a desirable place to live, and there is a reason people are eager to leave there and live all over the world in large numbers. This may be true of the Japanese too, but in general... Americans, Europeans, Canadians, Australians and so on are not so keen to move to China and live, although many do enjoy living for a time in Japan, just as they do even more starkly in South Korea, but not North Korea. Of course, we do not find many North Koreans in any Western country because, well, they're not permitted to leave North Korea. If they were, there'd be a mass exodus. And this is all explained by people knowing implicitly the difference between static and dynamic societies. People want rapid progress. They want to be able to solve their problems and be creative. They do not want the government intruding into every area of their life. So they move to the USA in numbers greater than any other country. They're not leaving the USA and fighting to try and get in elsewhere to places like China. And people move to Britain and Australia and Canada and parts of Europe. These places are desirable to the extent that people there are free. People are fighting to get into these places and the citizens already there are worried to the extent they are about immigration, for example, to the extent the immigrants bring with them ideas that are antagonistic to dynamic societies. In other words, the kind of anti-rational memes some immigrants hold. If an immigrant thinks that criticising their religion or their holy book or the government or their previous country and their governments should not be allowed, they should not be allowed into the country they wish to adopt as their home. 
These people are a minority, of course, it must be admitted, of immigrants to Western countries. Of course they're a minority, but we also can't ignore them. And we cannot ignore the citizens and immigrants in our own countries who are already here, who possess anti-rational memes that would drive violent behaviour. As David writes in chapter 15 on page 391 of The Beginning of Infinity, quote, Even in the West, the Enlightenment today is nowhere near complete. It is relatively advanced in a few vital areas. The physical sciences and Western political economic institutions are prime examples. In those areas, ideas are now fairly open to criticism and experimentation and to choice and change. But in many other areas, memes are still replicated in the old manner by means that suppress the recipient's critical faculties and ignore their preferences, end quote. We should recognise that we have a lot of room to improve in many places when it comes to completing the Enlightenment and making our society ever more dynamic. Voices that call for backward steps can be and are challenged in Western society, but we must be on guard. Institutions like our university systems can become hotbeds for anti-rational memes as they did in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. The arguments for Nazism began in German institutions of higher education in the form of, for example, talk about racial purity and nationalistic fervour. And not least, student groups were out loud and proud in the form of the National Socialist German Students League, which rose to prominence in the early 1930s, well before Hitler waged war. Indeed, it was first formed in 1926, where although it was still a fringe group, it did find fertile ground in academic institutions. The parallels with today cannot be overlooked. The challenges to a dynamic society and the attempts to impose anti-rational memes on a society dominated by rational memes cannot ever be entirely eliminated because human creativity can always generate new ways to subjugate people. But so long as we criticise those who would seek to undermine the possibility of criticism by implementing safe spaces or places unsafe for certain groups like Jews or the implementation of hate speech laws, again, unless the hate speech is against Jews, or censorship of any kind, or harsh regulations on trade, think boycott, divest and sanction prescriptions, BDS in other words, that anti-Semitic idea of how to hurt Israel and hurt Jews, or those who would seek to make the case that democracy is not preferable to the alternatives. Whenever we hear these arguments made, we should hear a call for less dynamism, more stasis and more disabling of individual critical faculties. We hear calls for impoverishment, violence and suppression of speech and creativity. We hear calls for destroying the means of error correction. But we must preserve the means of error correction. And basically, at all costs. Because not to do so will eventually cost us everything. Our lives, the lives of our family and friends, the loss ultimately of civilization. We aren't there yet by any means, but this is not an argument for inaction. It is an argument for having a bias towards action. The US Marines have a doctrine of bias for action, which basically means 
taking the initiative. This is what people of the Enlightenment should be prepared to do when encountering anti-Enlightenment values. Don't just remain silent. Say something. The ex-Navy SEAL Jocko Willink praises the Marines for this useful bias-for-action heuristic, but implores people to take it a step further, especially when times are tough. He says the way to win is to be default aggressive. Jocko says default aggressive can be easily misunderstood. He does not mean start a fight. He means to be decisive in order to make things better before they get worse. If we see people in the street chanting for death and genocide, don't be silent. Challenge it. Challenge anyone who supports it. They are already being aggressive. China and its supporters in the West are already being aggressive. Islamists everywhere are already being aggressive. So good people everywhere need to be default aggressive in response. In other words, decisive and clear in defending freedom, free speech, free trade, democracy. And in that order and to the extent they are under threat. And as the US Declaration of Independence so eloquently puts it, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We should be default aggressive in defending those no matter what nation we're in. Life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness are what are guaranteed in any nation in the Enlightenment mould where a tradition of criticism directs how ideas are treated. The tradition of criticism is our very means of error correction and is expressed through our protection of free expression, free trade and democracy. And preserving those means of error correction is at the heart of how improvements are made anywhere. It is the very means by which civilization will survive or will certainly be destroyed if they are not protected. If you would like to support this endeavour, please go to my website at www.bretthall.org and there you will find links for how to support me. Until next time. Bye-bye.